0: Zechariah 4, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy and infallible word. Then the angel who talked with me, remember he has this angel guide throughout these visions. The angel returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? Of course, obviously he doesn't. This is all very complicated. No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you? O oh, mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. And the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel that was an instrument for building, which I'm mentioning now because we're not going to get into it in the sermon. It's a building measurement tool. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. And then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out gold oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. That's God's word for us this morning. Never, never, never give up. Does anyone know that quote? Who said it? Winston Churchill. Very good. It was October 29, 1941, and Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill. I think in the original speech, it was never, never, never give in, but it's come down to us as never, never, never give up. It's the same idea. Churchill, he was the prime minister of England in the midst of World War II. Sixteen million Americans served in that great conflict. Sixteen million. In the year 2000, there were almost six million veterans of that war yet alive now, today, there are just about 800,000. An average of 500 are dying each day, veterans of World War II, including just a couple weeks ago Bernie Wearsome and Bernie Lindemolder from our own church. In the face of great fear and in the face of great evil, Winston Churchill was one of the courageous world leaders who gave tremendous hope and inspiration to the people of his nation and to the world. Never, never, never give up. And those words have continued to inspire people who have faced trouble and hopelessness and battles. I really think this quote can help us approach this fifth vision of Zechariah this morning. This vision is a tremendous encouragement to God's people everywhere. We're going to take those three nevers from the Churchill quote and see God's message for us today in our text. First of all, Christians, never be overwhelmed by the mighty mountains of this world. Never be overwhelmed by the mighty mountains of this world. Verse 6 has probably the most well-known quote from Zechariah, not by might. Nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. The might and power to fear in Zechariah's day, it wasn't Nazi Germany or Japan. The world powers that recently threatened Israel were Assyria and Babylon, and now in Zechariah's day, it was the Persian Empire. I want you just to take a a peek at the Persian Empire. This was the mighty power of that day and the extent of it. It was the most expansive of the ancient empires. Its its reach was geographically larger than the Roman Empire. Though Persia's policy let God's people, who were in exile, return to their homeland to rebuild, Israel remained under This giant's control, they were just a small speck of a people in the midst of this great world power. Other mountains that God's people faced were the challenges of rebuilding their city, rebuilding the temple, the place of worship. Especially the rebuilding of the temple is the backdrop to the book of Zechariah. Because of the Babylonian takeover in 587 B.C., there was literally a mountain of rubble that had to be overcome and moved to begin the rebuilding. It's kind of interesting. Zechariah's visions came in 519 B.C. So that's 68 years in the past for them that Jerusalem and the temple had become a mountain of rubble. It's interesting because that's just about the same length of time that we today are distant from World War II. Not exactly, but just about. There were more obstacles and mountains like the enemies of God's people surrounding the city who didn't want to see this rebuilding happen. There were even opponents to God's people rebuilding among the Israelites. There were people who said, it can't be done. This project is too great. There was a lack of vision among God's people. There was just plain old laziness and a lethargy. In the face of all this, we read in verse 7, What are you, O mighty mountain? What are you? Before Zerubbabel, and that was the governor of Israel at that time, before him, you will become level ground." God's people don't have to be overwhelmed by the mighty mountains around us because God will overwhelm them. God will cut them off. God will make those mountains flat. Isaiah 40 most famously prophesies this type of thing. Every mountain and hill will be made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, in the face of any obstacle out there. God will accomplish his purposes. Evil in this world can be like a mighty mountain. The track our culture seems to be on can seem overwhelming. Christians' voice, the church's voice, seems to be getting smaller and tinier in the face of powerful social forces and we can feel puny Before the might of politicians and financial institutions and all the rest, none of it phases our God. Empires have come and gone, kings rise and fall. The most powerful and mighty people become dust that blows away in the wind. But God's word will stand forever. God's work has never been thwarted. It will roll on to completion, cutting off the mighty mountains in this world and cutting off the mighty mountains in your life, making them level ground on which to build his church and his kingdom. Never fear, Christian. Never give up. Never be overwhelmed by the mighty mountains. God will remove all obstacles to accomplish his purposes. He always has. And he will in your life too. Whatever your immediate mountain is this morning. A mountain of worry. A mountain of financial obligations. A mountain of a challenge at work or at school. As in Old Testament times, the the tops of mountains were cut down to create a flat place on which to construct a temple of worship. God creates level ground today to construct his perfect purposes in history and in your life and in my life too. Second today, friends, never underestimate the day of small things. God says in verse 10, who despises the day of small things? And that's to say we better not Despise the day of small things. So, the context of this is that the people were starting to rebuild the temple. This was the temple that got destroyed in 587, about 70 years earlier. It was the one that King Solomon had built, and it was glorious, it was magnificent. Well, as the people in Zechariah's day now started rebuilding and planning, it became really clear that this second temple would not be nearly as great. In fact, in the book of Ezra, we read that some of the older church members wept when they saw the foundation being laid because it was going to be so much smaller than the first temple, Solomon's temple. Some wept, others scoffed, and they derided, they derided this new temple building that God had commissioned in Zechariah's day. The prophets always talked about the day of the Lord, but there were cynics in the church that, in that day that mocked that phrase. They twist the day of the Lord to say, This is the day of small things. And we can look down and despise what we consider small things today, too. We look back on the days of Churchill and the strength of his resolve in the face of evil. Or we think about in the 1980s how Ronald Reagan stood up to the Soviet Union. We look around today at our nation. Many people do and the West, and, and we weep at this day of, of small things compared to the glory days of the past. We can weep about it. We can just get cynical and jaded about it. can do it in our own lives, too. Maybe think back to when all, all the kids were home, and now it's just the two of you in, 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 a, in a too quiet house, or maybe there's just one of you because God has called your spouse home. We look back when we were young, and the future was bright, and now today our, our optimism has sort of changed to realism and, and maybe even to some of us to pessimism. As a Christian, we might think back to a time when we were very excited about our faith. We were growing in our walk with God. And maybe today, by comparison, we're kind of discouraged about the spiritual blandness that we know is in our life. Or, or we think back to when everyone came back to church on Sunday evenings. It's not just the same anymore. In a lot of different ways, it can feel like we're living in a day of small things. But God's messages do not despise the day of small things. Why is that? Why not? Well, we remember that this is God's preferred method for building His kingdom. In the day of small things. Because then he gets all the glory. And we realize very clearly that it's about him. It's not about us. It's not about our achievements in the days when there's nothing for us to boast about. This is how our God works, friends, in the day of small things. Through a small slave baby in a small basket in a river, hidden among the reeds. Well, the baby Moses would grow to be God's chosen leader, to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. Years later, when the great prophet Elijah was discouraged, he was looking for the Lord to come and encourage him. You know what? God didn't come as he expected. God didn't come in the whirlwind. He didn't come in the earthquake. God didn't come in the fire. Remember how God came? In the still small voice, still small voice. Hundreds of years later, in the midst of one of the greatest imperial powers the world has ever known, in the days of Caesar Augustus, a small child was born in the backwoods of the empire, born in a manger, born to a totally unknown girl, and this was the son of God's entry into our world. And there was no room for him in the end. Jesus' birth was the ultimate day of small things. Jesus, when he walked and talked on this earth, once took out the smallest of seeds. If I had one in my hand, you wouldn't even be able to see it this morning. The mustard seed. And you know what he said to his followers? He said, this is what my kingdom is like. A small thing, but don't, Despise the day of small things because when that seed grows, it becomes bigger than all the garden plants. In fact, it grows to a tree and the birds of the air will come and make their nest in its branches. The disciple Peter didn't get it. He pulled out his sword at Jesus' arrest, but Jesus says to him and to us, not by might, not by power, Peter, I've got another plan. I've got another way. And it would be the smallness and weakness of the cross. We think from our perspective that the crucifixion was this major world event. But hardly anyone noticed. Hardly anyone knew about it when it happened. It was a a small thing in the world's eyes. The reality is that those who despise the day of small things will miss salvation Will miss Jesus and his kingdom because this has always been God's way. Now, we can think that the best way to change this country is to elect a certain president or it's to overturn Roe versus Wade. I want to encourage you to vote for the right person. I want to encourage us all to seek to work to overturn injustice. These are worthwhile efforts, but nations and empires have rarely, if ever, been spiritually transformed through the big things, not through might and power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The world was changed when Jesus' followers did small things in the world's eyes. What were they doing? They were were preaching sermons. They were sharing what they had with those in need around them. They were fellowshipping together and eating together. They were gathering together to pray. Our tendency is to think that God is doing something just through the big and the flashy, stuff that's important and impressive, but when we think that, Because that's what our culture values. It's not what God's word tells us. Do we despise the day of small things? We must never do that because this is how God works. He works best and most often through the small things. Through a believer spending those hours and those times in prayer during the week by volunteering at 3 a.m. at PADS. By keeping the nursery looking clean and up to date for our littlest ones. By, by a group of men that we had, we had up here this morning preparing songs to sing to help us honor God and worship. By preparing and bringing a meal to someone who needs the support. Writing an encouraging letter to a missionary or to someone in prison talking to, reaching out to that person who is standing alone and looks like they need a friend. Having a simple conversation with your coworker about his life and how he's doing. Steady, day-by-day faithfulness in marriage and in those closest relationships in your life. Teachers and medical care professionals and and lawyers and politicians and, and truck drivers and people in the military giving In what they do, ultimate allegiance to the King of Kings. Christians working and praying to build up their local congregation, even here at Faith. God specializes in the small things. It's his preferred way of building his kingdom. Through that small baby at Christmas, through the weakness of the cross, he transforms our lives and he transformed the world. And through the chief servant Jesus and all who humbly belong to him by faith, he is building the city of God today until his son returns on the clouds. And then the world will see as clear as day, how all these seemingly small things will end and will culminate in the greatest thing in the history of the cosmos. God will be all in all. Sin will be wiped away. Satan and all who belong to him will once and for all be cast into the outer darkness. And all who have entered his kingdom through faith in Jesus will enjoy God in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. Finally this morning, never forget God's essential oil for you. Never forget this morning God's essential oil for you. Maybe you've heard of essential oils. These are a big deal I hear. I heal. They're for healing. They're all different ones. They help you in all kinds of situations. The use of natural essential oils for aromatherapy is an ancient and time-honored tradition that's been improving moods and lifting spirits for thousands of years. Aromatherapy oils are genuine reflections of the botanicals from which they're born. When these natural extracts are diffused, they can inspire, give radiance, energize, soothe, and encourage wellness and peace of mind. This one is eucalyptus. And I'm told you can put a couple drops in your bath. I've never done it. On your skin. These oils are for your emotional state, like helping with stress. Some can help if you're sick, if you're in pain. Pretty cool. Well... Tucked away in our text, really not tucked away, but there real clearly for us to see if we look in the right way, we are shown the original, ancient, essential oil. The Holy Spirit is called oil in many, many places in Scripture. In our text, we see the solid, gold lampstand with seven lights on it, and it reminds us of what was called the menorah in the temple in Israel— got a picture of a menorah every day the priest would resupply the oil and the seven lights on the lampstand would be lit and shine in the book of revelation the seven gold lampstands represent the seven churches and so we think that these lights in our vision are a picture of the people of god They're you and me. Jesus is the light of the world, and we're called to be the light of the world too, after all. But in our vision, this is different from the menorah. It's different. Here's a a rendering of, of, of what's in our text. There's a bowl on top with channels leading down from two olive trees, one on the right and the left, And verse 12 fills it out even more. Two gold pipes pouring out oil. The point is, in this new and improved menorah, the supply of oil is continuous. It's pouring out of those olive oil trees. It never ends. The lights never go out. It's a picture of what happens after Jesus comes into this world. The Holy Spirit is constantly poured out into the lives of God's people. Because of Jesus' work of putting to death our sins on the cross and rising again to give us new life, and that's represented by the two olive branches in verse 14, by the way. Because of his work, the Spirit is poured out on us as people. This is important because you might think about God's building project, God's kingdom, God knocking away the mountain flat building up, and and you know you want to be a part of that. And you might even know you can be a part of that by just believing in Jesus. But turns out it's a lot of work. Even doing the small things, maybe especially the small things. That's a lot of work. It can be very draining. Day by day faithfulness and steadiness in our homes, in our work, in our church, in all our relationships. That's tough. It stresses us out. We get weary. We can use Too much alcohol or get into other bad habits or patterns to relieve the stress and keep going, shut the world out for a little while and wake up the next day to to try to be faithful all over again. But no, that's not how it has to go. Never, ever forget that God supplies your power. He will provide the essential oil we need for our lives. The Holy Spirit, who is God himself, he lives right in our hearts. He invigorates, he energizes our life. He gives our lives radiance, as Jesus promises when he says, you are the light of the world. Depend on him. As AA says in a great way, let go and let God. There's great truth there. Let God fill you. Draw on him. Just call out to him in prayer. He's right there to hear you and answer. Read his word. Let him fill you. Be in worship where God is gracious to pour out his oil in a very special way and in a very invigorating way Sunday by Sunday on his people. There's this picture in verse 7 of the capstone of the temple being brought out to great rejoicing and shouts by the people, God bless it, God bless it. But the word is really grace. Grace. The people are rejoicing and shouting because they know God has done the work. You can be invigorated in your life when it clicks in your heart That all that God has done for you is by his grace. Salvation, entering the kingdom, living for the Lord, being part of his building project. We can rest and rejoice in that. In his gracious work for us. It's a free gift. We just have to receive. So never be overwhelmed. By the mighty mountains, God will overwhelm the obstacles. Never underestimate the day of small things. In the small things, that's exactly how our God loves to work. And never forget your essential oil, the gracious work of God and Jesus that he applies to your life every day, continuously, through the Holy Spirit. And so, friends, I want to encourage you this morning. God's word, I believe, encourages us. Never, never, never give up. Keep going strong, and let's keep going strong together here at Faith CRC. Amen.